This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us once again, Franklin Leonard, Vanity Fair contributor, The Blacklist founder, uh, recent London to L.A. transplant back home again. Uh, It's so good to have you back. It's good to be back home again, home again in like two different ways. I had written you a long time ago to ask you to come on the show again and then realized that as uh, an American who was living in London and who watches soccer, you were the person to come talk to us about Ted Lasso. <laughs> um. I, the brand is strong. I, I, uh, <laughs> anybody who follows me on social media is, is well aware of my degenerate soccer fandom. <laughs> you have a lot. You have a lot to help us explain. Um, so we wanted to talk about Ted Lasso as kind of a kickoff to our uh, Emmy season coverage because the Oscars are over. Television's everywhere. There's a lot of really good TV out there right now, um, including Underground Railroad, which we wanted to talk about in, in, in some detail. It just debuted on Amazon. Uh, a lot of people are still watching it. So we'll get into that a bit. Um and at the end of the episode, we'll have Richard's interview with Mariel Heller, a return, also a return guest on Little Gold Men, uh, this time talking about the Queen's Gambit. A woman of many talents. Oh, my God. It's incredible. Um, But first, we wanted to get into some of the kind of the news that's out there this week. And the week kicked off with uh, some pretty big one, which is that Discovery and um, Warner Media are merging. Um, And all of us, you know, have varying levels of knowledge of kind of the Game of Thrones inner workings of these major entertainment companies. Um, I think a pretty satisfying, I quote from some analysts, was just that this is a huge embarrassment for AT&T to sell off Warner Media three years after buying it for many billions of dollars. Um, And it's really interesting to speculate on just what we as viewers will be seeing as a result of all of this. Are, are any of you feeling especially optimistic or pessimistic about what this is going to mean for us and what we see from Warner, from HBO, from all the various uh, entities involved? You know, whether or not it's, a, it's an embarrassment or a financial misstep, I think that what I've heard from people who make shows for HBO, for people who work in publicity at HBO, all sorts of folks over at HBO, that this acquisition, this era of HBO has been 
a real come down from its dizzying heights. And we haven't really seen it hugely impact uh, programming yet, I think. But I, I think people are really worried about the future of HBO. Every publicist I ever talked to over there is like scrambling, juggling too many things. There was this mandate to just do a glut of content. And then I think that that was that glut was tarnishing a brand that was sort of shiny and gold. And so I'm hopeful that in different corporate overlords might ha see a different value uh, in what HBO can do. Yeah, because the idea had been to compete with Netflix, right? Netflix has made quantity kind of this huge business model. Right. So HBO, which had been so like prestige and limited and it's on Sunday night and that's it. And then they expanded so much. And HBO Max is another part of that expansion. And on some level, I feel like HBO Max is working, at least in terms of the content they have. So like that might be a promising step forward. But yeah. I don't know what like another you know Discovery owns like HGTV and all these other cable networks to, and to some extent quantity is that identity and I don't know how HBO might fit into that. Right, it might not change. I'm just I'm just hopeful that it might change. It might revert back, not entirely back because I do like the content that's on HBO Max and I do like the opportunity for more creators to have an HBO show. I just think there might be a middle ground to be reached somewhere in there. Yeah, I mean, AT&T is a telecommunications company, and obviously they wanted a sort of content arm as part of their portfolio, but they didn't do the extreme thing, which would have been like, if you want to watch any Warner Media, including HBO content, you have to switch over to AT&T as your cell carrier, as your, you know, whatever, um, that kind of, and they didn't do that because that would be harmful to Warner Media's business. So they were kind of in this weird stuck middle position that really proved that it was a weird, probably bad acquisition. And yes, I hope that HBO feels a bit freed from that, you know, several years of um, people who don't really care about the entertainment industry telling a major player in the entertainment industry how to do things, which we're seeing more and more of um, as these huge conglomerates just consolidate and, you know, we're everything is kind of owned by the same five or six companies. So I'm hoping that HBO will feel a little bit freer. I don't know what that means for HBO Max's crazy output. But I suppose it's a little concerning that wherever, you know, if this discovery merger happens, like Warner Media is still carrying like $45, $50 billion in debt. And I don't think that HBO is going to go away anytime soon. But those kind of situations can be tricky and ultimately um, lead has led to some things downfall. I hope I don't think that's going to be true of HBO, but you never know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think my hope is that as this merger comes together and it sort of consolidates an identity, they'll realize that the model that's working for Netflix is to have everything. And that includes really premium stuff that is the that drives sort of water cooler conversation to the extent that there are water coolers anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, you know, that drives the conversation both online and in person about these things that you have to watch, right? Like, if you have that, you sort of draw people in and then you end up watching all of the unscripted programming that sort of sucks up 20 hours before you've realized that it's happened. And, you know, I always go back to read Hastings uh, comment that Netflix's primary competitor is sleep. Mm -hmm. right? And, and you can <laughs> only really do that if you have all kinds of things because people aren't going to just watch the sort of like you know I'm tuning this out it's an unscripted show but it's entertaining at all times you also have to have the stuff that they want to watch when they really want to have a sort of incredible quasi cinematic experience and you know, weirdly, combining Warner Media and Discovery gives you a lot of different types of content. And if you can figure out how to put that into a single package that's appealing and easy to use, you may have something there. I think that's a really good point, Franklin, is that with the addition of Discovery and Discovery Plus, which has been a pretty successful streaming platform for them that just launched this past year, uh, I actually have a 
piece sort of about it um, coming out in this the TV issue. That's the RVF's new issue. Um, is that they can kind of silo that more ambient have on while you make dinner kind of stuff away from the HBO brand, which has been so strong over the years. You know, I'm thinking about stuff on HBO Max, like Bethany Frankel, the former Real Housewife of New York, has a very poorly defined kind of ghoulish competition series that's on HBO Max currently that just premiered a couple weeks ago. So Bethany Frankel and anyone who works on that show is like can go around saying, I have an HBO show. And that, you know, most people probably don't care about that. But I think that if you're if you're someone at HBO who's concerned about branding, that might be a slight problem. So if you can push all of that more lifestyle content, which I devour myself, in addition to the prestige HBO stuff, it's good, I think, that they now will have hopefully some latitude to make those distinctions a bit more clearly and return HBO to the more specialized like event appointment television programming that it's known for. I think the challenge is really like, what is the the communication with the audience about what is what and where are the things that, right. like, where do right. you go to get the things that you're looking for? And so is there one single entry point and then there's a, you know, a fork in the road and you, you click one button or the other and you head into the HBO universe or you head into the Discovery or whatever other channel universe? I don't know what works. And I think everybody's still experimenting and figuring that out. But I think that like, you know, the question of curation and how people find what they want to watch, you know, is increasingly the question. And I think that's going to be a challenging one for them. But again, if they have enough stuff to make something viable and with a considerable investment to match their competitors, they may be able to sort of move forward into a global streaming marketplace. And I think that's interesting what you mentioned there, because talking about how Warner was chasing Netflix, but maybe this is uh, to a certain degree chasing the Disney Plus model, which is if you log onto your Disney Plus thing, you've got all those brands, as you mentioned, right at the top, like, do I want a Nat Geo? Do I want to, you know, this sort of thing? And do I want a Marvel? Do I want a Star Wars? And so to be able to put those tiles up at the top of, uh, of a stream. That's platform, exactly I think it's really what I was smart. thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really smart. I think they could also streamline it. So you would go, you would open your discovery HBO plus app, right? And there would just be two buttons, passive and active. And if you hit active, <laughs> you're going to get, you know, mayor of East town. And if you hit passive, you get all the, here's the thing, man. HGTV. A B A B test it. I'm I'm into it. Honestly, <laughs> like I I think we there's so little that we know about how people are going to interact with these sort of things to find things that they want to watch. Run the experiment. You never know. I would find <laughs> it helpful if I was looking for something. Brain on, brain off. You know, easy choice. I like the idea of decompressing from Mayor of Town with a uh, HETV. That seems useful actually maybe they could synergize it with a with a house hunters episode set in pencil from filmed in <laughs> pennsylvania you know I, i'm into the crossover yeah or like wawa's and drive throughs or something like that and diners yeah i'd watch it somebody takes the like the layer above the bar in that town and and renovates it into an yeah. actually functioning business the possibilities are endless really <laughs> Mayor is a police officer. Her budget is $3.5 million. <laughs> yes, inexplicably. Yeah. I like this optimism that you guys have because I think I feel this sense of despair when all these companies just merge and the sense that like all the entertainment is going to come from four or five different people. And I was thinking of you, Franklin, especially because you've worked with so many up and coming screenwriters and the amount of places where you can put your content is huge. But the amount of people who are in charge of that is increasingly limited. And I don't know if that feels like a good or a bad development in, um, in terms of getting more work out there. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure that it, the, the, the number of people has changed dramatically over time, right? There may have been these slight upticks when, when things seemed a little bit less consolidated. But, you know, when I started in the industry in 2003, there were a couple of studios and you had to sort of convince somebody there that, that, that you were what they wanted to do. And if it didn't work, you went and sort of tried to find any financing. But realistically, a lot of those things were still controlled by very few people. So for me, I try to you know, maintain a practice of optimism. And, and I take that optimism in these cases from the fact that, that that even though there are only a few people, there's just a gargantuan amount of money being deployed towards making things. And all of that money can't go to house hunters and property brothers and things like that. <laughs> and, and, and on top of that, because so much is being controlled by these very by, by so few companies, it's actually not possible for any one person at those companies to like control every aspect of every movie and every television show from a creative and aesthetic point of view. So my hope is, is that we end up, you know, if we must have consolidation, let us also have companies that say, look, we want you, a filmmaker, to tell this story and we're going to write you a check and we're not going to give you second act notes, come back with something amazing and we'll put it on our streaming service. If that ends up being the trade-off for me, I think I can make my peace with it because we're still going to get a ton of amazing things to watch. But I also know that we have to be skeptical and sort of constantly monitor how these things are changing to make sure that it ends up not being the death of all the things that we love. Yeah. Yeah, you see the casting announcements for Knives Out too, and you're like, okay, Netflix having uh, a blank check for Ryan Johnson can't be a bad thing. Exactly. It's like if this, you know, give me five to ten more of those annually at all of the different services for all kinds of different directors, I might be able to make my peace with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we should, speaking of giant uh, conglomerates and their acquisitions, um, there's also the rumor that Amazon is looking to buy MGM. I think MGM has been on the market for like a year at least. You know, at this point, James Bond is kind of their big treasure. And I'm not, you know, they have a back library. Obviously, it's an iconic Hollywood studio. That sale seems to make perfect sense to me. Like someone needed to get it. Um, does that ring any alarm bells for any of you guys? I think there's just a matter of, you know, the you know, there's the famous Disney vault. And, you know, when Disney acquired 20th Century Fox, now that's just called 20th Century, a lot of movies that, were available became unavailable because Disney has a much more can have a much more proprietary take on on what it owns you know like they were canceling repertory screenings of of certain old Fox movies and all that kind of stuff and the more that these studios with a a huge back catalog get acquired by big corporations that don't always think of like repertory screenings at small art house theaters or whatever you know other myriad ways that people watch old movies um then it becomes a bit of a concern that like so few people control so much of film history in a sense Mm. that um you know that it could it could pose a problem in terms of access yeah i wasn't thinking about it that way in terms of mgm past um that's a really good point agreed this is a great plus for HBO Max. Their back catalog of old Warner Brothers movies is incredible. And, uh, well, you know, I think that's one of the reasons it's emerged as like a film favorites streaming service because there's so much there. Are those Fox movies living somewhere at the at the moment or is it is it Disney waiting to figure out exactly what it wants to do with some of the Fox content that is requ- acquired? You know, because there's a whole like there's Hulu as a spot for quote unquote mature content, however you, Disney chooses <laughs> to define that. Um and then there's, you know, the, the fact that Disney Star, in, you know, internationally is housing some of that stuff. So I wonder if it's still sort of in flux, but I, I don't I don't think it impacts your other point, Richard, about like repertory sort of art house. Yeah, I think my big question is in Las Vegas, does it become the MGM Prime or the Amazon Grand? 
Amazon Grand, yeah. <laughs> what if they like built a river and a jungle inside that casino? Like I could uh, to reflect the Amazon. I can I can see that. What if they replaced the lion roaring in the logo with like just Bezos or something? Like <laughs> a cardboard box yeah. opening. With oh yeah. the box just Be- Bezos doing the, a roar. The roar. Unnecessarily, <laughs> I like the unnecessarily large box being opened. That, that definitely <laughs> feels perfect. Just bubble wrap popping. Exactly. <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Um, I, well, I guess speaking of Amazon and also uh, behemoths giving a ton of money to projects, um, the Underground Railroad is Amazon's big new project at the moment. Uh, it's created, directed by Barry Jenkins, adapted from Colson Whitehead's novel. Um, as we talked about at the beginning, um, we uh, think, Franklin, you finished it. Uh, I have watched a few episodes. Joanne's close to it. But all the episodes are out now. It's 10 episodes. Uh, I don't really think any of us would recommend binging it, even if maybe that's the way that we watched it. It is something that you really want to sit with. And, you know, some of the most of the episodes, I think, are over an hour long. Like, it's really dense. And if you're familiar with Barry Jenkins's films, I think that's what you would expect. But seeing that in a like many hours long TV format, I think is a somewhat different experience. Um, but we did want to talk about it to some extent because it is beautiful. It is spectacularly produced. I can't think of anything that's more like of a lush production that I've seen on television and especially dealing with this kind of subject matter where, um, you know, very briefly, the novel uh, is it basically imagines that the Underground Railroad was a real thing, a real railroad that went underground. Um, and But then a lot of other things about the past are changed in this. It's this woman, Cora, who escapes from a plantation in Georgia and travels to South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee. And it's all a kind of alternate version of history and um, telling some interesting stories from there. Um, again, I don't want to talk too much about it having not finished it, but it feels like a major work that is going to take months for us to wrap our heads around and... Uh, who else wants to throw out a half-formed thought about Underground Railroad as we continue to process it? Well, here's what I'll say. Like, um, I read the book, um, and I really liked the book, and I was watching the, the first few episodes, and I was watching it, and I was enjoying it, and I could see some of the hallmarks of, you know, the Barry Jenkins style, but I wasn't really embraced or I wasn't embracing or it wasn't embracing me the way that other Barry Jenkins projects have until I got to episodes eight and nine, which are Indiana two-parter. And in those episodes, uh, William Jackson Harper enters uh, the narrative, but there's also some uh, imagined dream stuff that plays in um, the love story playground, which is something that Barry Jenkins sort of gets me every time. And I was watching episode seven, I think it is. And there's this sort of dream thing that happens. And all of a sudden I was openly weeping and in cracking me open there, it cracked me open for the rest of the series. I think I had come at a place of like, I was, it's such a, it's such a, a subject matter that is so tough in so many ways that I think I came with like some of my defenses up. Like I, I, I need to come at this sort of with some protection, if that makes sense. Then he cracked me up in with that stuff he does where I'm just sort of like feeling all of my feelings at once. Um, I watched those episodes eight, and nine. Yeah, it's eight, and nine. And, uh, 
and uh, yeah, I was crying. And then uh, <laughs> I did exactly uh, what I did afterwards is watch the last 30 minutes of Moonlight, which is something I just do oh sometimes. I just do it sometimes Ooh. to remember what it's like to feel. And, um, <laughs> and I just lived in that Jenkins, like meaningful glances space uh, for a while. So that's, that was my journey through the Underground Railroad, I guess. Yeah. I, I went back and rewatched the beginning of the first episode because I'd watched them far apart and I had kind of missed that it opens with this very brief montage of uh, things that happen later in the series and I had missed William Jackson Harper being in there somehow and I was just watching him like purposely striding through the cornfield and thought about that shot of Andre Holland looking at the camera and smoking in moonlight and I was like ah oh, I see I see where we're going with this I like, almost and- sent you that <laughs> gift last night Katie I almost <laughs> sent you our favorite Andre Holland gift so, rent free yeah, in my mind yeah. for the rest of my life I mean so I finished it last night and I've been trying to sort of watch it slowly um, and having this weird thing where like I wanted to keep watching at the end of every episode. I wanted to keep watching, but I also knew like it might be a little bit much emotionally and that I would be a good thing to let, let myself process the episode and then watch another episode the next day, which is sort of what I've been doing day to day. It's, it's fascinating. I, I think I had a similar experience as you, Joanna, which is like I could appreciate through the early sections of it, the extraordinary filmmaking on display, like literally every element, the performance, Tucson Betty's performance is just ridiculous, like unreal. But it wasn't until episodes seven, eight, nine, and then 10, where I really, where it really cracked me open. And I think what's fascinating about, I think what, what happened, and again, I need to watch it again. I will definitely watch it again because it is a masterwork. Um, like you said, Katie, all of that stuff just tees up the cracking. Um, and when it, when you crack it, you crack wide because of sort of this, I, I don't even know how to talk about it without giving too much away, but there's this, this notion of fleeting joy and, and the release that comes from those episodes. Um, and it still feels tenuous. Um, that look also just, you know, being black for my entire life, but especially over the last 18 months, it felt particularly um, cracking. It's an extraordinary thing. People should watch it. It is a very difficult watch. You should almost definitely not binge it. You will end up needing or having an instinct to watch it multiple times. And I guarantee, even though I haven't done it yet, you will find new things. It's just a remarkable, emotional, beautiful piece of work. I'm still in the middle of the series. I think I've watched exactly half now. Um, So I haven't gotten to that cathartic or semi-cathartic moment that you both are speaking about. But I think that's something that's so interesting about it as a television project is, you know, Whitehead is such a, you know, a intricate, intense writer. You know, this novel won the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he He's just, he's held, I think, as kind of like one of the most, well, I mean, he's one of the most well-regarded fiction authors working right now. And to take something that not only has that pedigree, but also this incredibly pertinent, but difficult uh, subject matter. And then to add on Jenkins's you know, really signature and immersive formal graces. It is about as far into like prestige art house kind of stuff that I ever think I've seen television get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and something about that to a, a casual viewer may be alienating because this is when you hit the active button, you're not hitting the passive button yeah. <laughs> when mm-hmm. you're choosing to watch this show at all. And so I think that really is why it should not be binged. I think it should have been released week to week um, to give people to sit with time to sit with it and, and all that. But once you kind of get into that rhythm of each episode having this sort of, and I mean this in a good way, this sort of dreadful uh, momentum to each episode, 
and maybe we are moving towards these episodes you're both speaking about, which I, I, I'm excited to see. Um, it really starts to work on you. You know, you just have to kind of, you have to kind of braise in it. It's not a quick cook. And there's something about the allegory of it, this literal railroad, the sort of way that he takes the story, Whitehead and Jenkins, and, and makes it a little bit fable-like while also still bracingly brutal and, and, and re, you know, realistic that I think, I guess it adds something to a discourse that I have seen in recent times with Antebellum or other things that, that, I, I thought had maybe kind of was not being treated the right way in film and entertainment. And um, I'm, again, I'm still only halfway through, so I don't know what to expect going forward. No, but yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Go ahead. Having seen all of it, I completely agree with everything you said. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and the other thing I would add is, you know, I've been a Colson Whitehead fan since what I think was his first novel, The Intuitionist, um, which I believe Barry sort of revealed in an interview in Vanity Fair that he is also a big fan of. And in watching, it's either episode eight or nine, I caught a quote pulled from The Intuitionist. There's a moment. Again, can't give too much away. There's a there's there's a direct passage of language pulled from the intuitionist, which I am personally hoping is a signal that we may get an adaptation of that, um, because I have long believed that that was a film. But now I am convinced I, I'm I'm now pro prestige novel television adaptation in this form. They're not all going to be as good as Underground Railroad, but if we can get more filmmakers doing this level of work with this level of freedom and this level of ambition, sign me up. Yeah. There's also in episode seven, there's a character reveal that is a character from the, um, the intuitionist. Yeah. So yeah. that like, you know, some people are like, is this a, is this a backdoor pilot? Cinematic I, universe. Look, yeah. Give it, bring it on. I <laughs> not, literally nothing would make me happier. I, I've loved that book for so long. And, and I, I do, I think it could be an incredible, uh, again, 10 episode, eight episode, whatever, but give me one season of that. And I would be very happy. I think the thing about this, that's, that's maybe slightly trickier than some of the other things that, he's adapted um that Barry's adapted is is in thinking about that sort of like having to wait until episode eight or nine to really crack open some of the emotional core of this I think that's the character of Cora who is naturally extremely guarded until she's not you know what I mean and so then when she cracks open the whole thing cracks open and then you know and that means on rewatch, you know, not to keep talking about Moonlight, but it, like you think about like Trevante Rhodes' performance in the last part of that film, and you know the interior of this character because you've met him along his journey, but he is so guarded until he's not. And so when he cracks, it means that much more because you've seen his guards up. And then when you see them come crumbling down, it's just sort of like, you know, and so I think in a slower burn kind of way, this series is doing a similar thing. And so I do think the emotional payoff is well worth any sort of, I've heard from some people that they have a challenge connecting with the Cora character and I can understand that. And I think it's by design and I, you know, and so I, I, all I know is that when I rewatch this, I will now have a different emotional understanding of that character. And that I think will only enrich, you know, reward me rewatching uh, this piece. Um, even though I'm still not done watching the series, I want to recommend some supplemental material. Um, there's the book, obviously, which I finished reading recently. And then Barry Jenkins released this 90-minute video, on, or sorry, 50-minute video on Vimeo, The Gaze, yeah. um, which is basically him taking the people 
the main characters in the show and background actors and kind of, you know, when you assemble a production this big, you have hundreds of people who are on camera. And he turns his camera on them. And I think we're all familiar uh, at this point with kind of the Barry Jenkins camera, like lingering on someone's face, looking directly at him. And he calls it the gaze and really, you know, wrote in this note accompanying it that he realized on this set he was conjuring his ancestors and lots of people's ancestors who were never captured on camera, who were never captured in paintings, who kind of have no record of them. And he, you know, you sense that he felt this imperative to capture them in that way, knowing the power he has with his camera. Um, and he got into that some in this really incredible interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, the founder of the 1619 Project that they did for The Hollywood Reporter, um, kind of talking about a lot of that. And something she said to him that I think really helped kind of frame the episodes I saw after that. She talks about how we learned about the French Revolution and not the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and so many black people feel demeaned and degraded by the history of slavery. Then it looks as if we didn't exercise agency in ways big and small. And there's so little of our joy. Our, we had love. That's why everything that was being done to us, we were fully human. And thinking of that sentence in, um, there's, I think, episode four is it's a flashback to um, Joel Edgerton's slave catcher character, Ridgeway. And there's this one shot, because uh, there, there are three black people surrounding him as he's growing up. And there are these two people on a seesaw. And the camera is on the seesaw, and it's showing this woman kind of going up and down, having a great time on a seesaw. And she's not a character in the show. She's not part of the story, really. But it takes that moment. And he put the camera on there. He captured that moment in there. Um, and it's not the plot, but it is the story. And I think the more I watch it and the more I pay attention to things like that, I feel like I'm getting the full picture of what this show is. Yeah, I can't recommend The Gaze highly enough. Um, I think I joked on Twitter, like, they just need to project it onto a wall at the moment and run it yeah. on a loop. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, fu it's, it's funny, too, because... Like I talk about Frederick Douglass, I actually wrote about Frederick Douglass um, in an episode of, in an uh, issue of Vanity Fair. <laughs> so and, we think of it that and, way too. And the reason that I'm so obsessed with, with Douglass is is that you know he, even during the Civil War, right, this fugitive slave who ended up being the most photographed American of the 19th century, and did it very consciously because he wanted to sort of like define the image of black people in opposition to the way they had been portrayed sort of throughout media in the 19th century. You know, here we are. 150 years later, and still there's the need for asserting those images and sort of saying, this is the black gaze, this is the humanity of black people as human beings, as people who ride on seesaws, as people who, you know, chase balls around in a field, as children and mothers and fathers. Um, and I can't sort of get over the idea that like, you know, Douglas was born, was born enslaved, was it became a fugitive, like he was literally on some level, like the plot of this book and this television series and his focus on photography and how Barry flipped that into the gaze again don't know if it was conscious but it just there are themes and residences here that that go so deep that I haven't even begun to process them yet and I'm just really excited to be able to sort of sit with it and and think through those things which is rare for any film television novel whatever yeah I think if I had one uh, critique of this series, it would be that it's much more interested in the Joel Edgerton Ridgeway character than I am. And I think I yeah. need to figure out what I think is really being done there because it's expanded from the book. Um, and so I'm just trying to figure out wh why that's of interest to Jenkins. I would like to know. Um, I share that. I share that question. Yeah. And I actually assumed that he was, I have, I have not read the novel, embarrassingly enough, but I assumed that he was that big of a presence in the novel. And to hear that he's not, I am very curious about he's, that choice. I mean, he's consistently there, but that whole expanded backstory situation, like all of that, you know, is, is additive 
And I, yeah, I'm curious. That's something that um, our colleague Sonia Soraya wrote about um, this week. I published today, I think. She wrote about uh, Mayor of Easttown and Underground Railroad um, because Mayor of Easttown recently, you know, revealed these two girls who've been trapped in an attic. And there's an episode of Underground Railroad where our heroine Cora is trapped in an attic and kind of these shows are, you know, confronting trauma in that way. And she also um, kind of questioned the decision to expand that character. So I, I, I missed that. a Soraya piece. I'm even more disappointed. <laughs> I think it was published like I'm an hour ago. I'm even more disappointed in myself. I got to get on that. Wow. Mayor, Mayor and Underground Railroad. That's Mayor like right and Railroad. And, <laughs> I, I have yeah. my reading list for the rest of the day. Um, but some Thing. Yeah, and I we should probably be better uh, in general about promoting uh, VF work. But I will say, in in regards to this decision to drop it all at once, which universally television critics have said feels like a really bad move on Amazon's part, um, and Amazon has has slow released some things and binge dropped other things. So it seems like they're really experimenting with like what works with what show. Um, but our, our colleague Joey Press wrote a great piece um, sort of about some folks in the TV industry who are questioning, who are just really feeling burnt by the binge model in terms of feeling like they've labored long and hard. This is more a critique of Netflix than anything else because Netflix can, I talked about this with Ma Rainey, how like, one week after Ma Rainey was out, it was in a Netflix own hidden gems section. And I was like, this is your film. Why you hit it? it. Why are you hiding it? Um, so, you know, the, the feeling that you can labor on something for a very long time and then just feel like it gets dumped um, is something I think people are talking about. And I'm, I'm not sure. I, Amazon certainly isn't dumping underground railroad. They're doing a lot of promotion around it. There's a lot of love around it. But I do think that. You know, a, a binge is just not right for this show. And especially I because I have it. seen some reticence, you know, just anecdotally online, whether it was responses to a promoted tweet um, from Amazon about the show to people being like, I don't like this is too much. I can't watch this. Like not another one of these stories, you know, um, and I, look, people are going to feel that way no matter what. And that's absolutely understandable and fine. But I think if this was meted out more delicately, and given that time to breathe and grow, you know, sort of momentum, it could maybe convince people who I think ultimately might get something out of it to engage with it versus just, well, it was out one week and then people moved on. You know, I think I don't think people are moving on in any way because it's taking people longer to watch it than Emily in Paris or something. But, um, yeah, I just think a little more like careful stewardship especially because this is really difficult stuff that you're asking people to watch you know and um maybe not dumping it all on there at once would be a little bit more of a a gentle hand holding into what is a, a difficult but so far at least very re rewarding uh, viewing experience I mean, here's the one counter argument that I'd make to like sort of yeah. forcing a once a week release, which is, mm -hmm. is that I appreciate the ability to go at my own pace. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, I, I think if that had been a once a week proposition for me, I don't know. I, I, I liked being able to watch it in the span of about two weeks. Like that was about right for me. And I think that that feels like tolerable it's not like blitzing through it and like my brain was going to be fried for the next week and a half but it's also i think if it had been over 10 weeks i think there's a very good chance i wouldn't not that i wouldn't have appreciated it or wouldn't have enjoyed it but i don't know i would have been annoyed that i had to wait 10 weeks to watch it all if that makes yeah. any sense so mm -hmm. I, I look i think that we are still in the uh, the brave new world of like what is optimal 
to release a show and depending on what your goals are, right? Like Emily in Paris, it seems right to just release it, let people binge it. Bridgerton, same thing. Does it make more sense to sort of meet out the, the more difficult material? Is that better for, is that better for the work? Is it better for the artist, or is it better to just like put it all out, put a massive press support behind it at, in one moment and trust that because it's exceptional, people will find it on their own t- in terms. I mean, that actually may be a good transition to Ted Lasso, by the way, because um, I feel like because that's the other thing. I feel like that one came out and then people found it six months later and are still finding it, which yeah. is yeah. sort of mind blowing to me. And I would love I would actually love someone to do like a, a data viz project on Ted Lasso tweets and how it moved through the culture, because I, mm-hmm. I stood for literally eight constant months. I feel like I've been seeing tweets that are like. Oh, so this Ted Lasso show is incredible. Thank, I, why didn't anybody <laughs> tell me? And it's like, literally, it's all anybody's been talking about. It feels like the more accelerated version of the Shit's Creek conversation we had, right? Yes, like yes, absolutely. You know, exactly. Yeah. Um, that that was just like season by season. You know, it took several seasons for people to watch in the first place once it got um, popped up on Netflix off of Pop TV and stuff like that, but off of CBC. But like, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I would love to see that. And I would love to see... Katie and I have talked about this off air, but I would love to see how that then bleeds into other Apple shows because we've been talking about the, this idea that like, so Apple, because they're a giant corporation and can do this sort of thing, um, you know, offered Apple TV with purchase of new iPhone. That's the thing that they, that's a promo that they ran. And I think a lot of people hearing about this Ted Lasso show were like, sure. Okay. Watch Ted Lasso. And they were like, what else is going on? And I've, word of mouth heard a lot of people hopping on a mythic quest which is a great show another great show mm-hmm. and and like and really kind of in that ted lasso bucket and so i would love to see you know i would love to see that data viz of, of ted lasso and then i would love to see the, the you know the smaller but but steady uh rise of mythic quest 2 as it heads into season two and stuff like that i just think it's an interesting i didn't i didn't expect this to happen with apple tv and i'm glad i'm glad to see it Glad to see good that, work recognized. Yeah. That Ted Lasso raises all boats yeah. on the, the yeah. Apple TV. Yeah, because they started, they were like, we have the morning show. We have Dickinson. We have like big, fancy, expensive stuff. Don't forget they C, have this Katie. One- <laughs> that's the, the Jason Momoa thing that isn't Aquaman. But wait, yeah. is he in that one? Is that Henry Cavill? It's, Henry Cavill's in the, in the Witcher. No one can see except one baby. Or two babies. <laughs> two babies. Yeah. Um, they have this like prestige HGTV show called Home. Did anybody ever watch this? It's like these spectacular houses with like lush camera work. I love it. It's very up my there alley. It was Defending Jacob. I mean, that, that was the whole thing of the big, because I went to the Apple TV big thing that they had over oh at Apple, God, right? right? And they just trotted star after star on the stage and like Oprah's there and Spielberg is there and like all this sort of stuff. And then it was Ted Lasso. It was, you know, and it, which is- was? A, Wait, was Ted Lasso part of that presentation? No, zero percent. Okay, I didn't think so. Zero yeah. percent. No, no Sudeikis. Uh, nothing uh, to do with Ted Lasso. And so it's just like that's a that's a beautiful Cinderella story. What a sports story. Do you know what I mean? What a, so, what a Ted Lasso worthy yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so Franklin, as we mentioned, you are a soccer fan. You were just living in London. You've got kind of, I think, a oh. lot of the 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 personal Ted Lasso experience. I mean, I don't know if that necessarily gives you any insight on the appeal of the show because it does seem so universally appealing. But do you have kind of a summary for why everyone keeps falling for it? Well, I mean, it's interesting because when, so I'll be totally honest, when they announced it, I was, as a soccer fan, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is <laughs> offensive to an entire community of, of football fans the world over, and it's going to be terrible. And look, I'm a fan. You were of, those guys in the pub, like yelling at Ted Lasso 100%, on the TV screen. <laughs> 100%. I, the TV executive version of it. Um, <laughs> and, and 
throughout watching it, I, I remember sitting there watching it saying, I, this shouldn't be working. What sort of wicked alchemy is this that I'm enjoying this show? And by the end, I, I just was became a sort of, you know, unapologetic evangelizer for it. And, and I think that it has a lot to do with I actually think that Mo Ryan wrote the best thing that I've read about Ted Lasso. Um, again, in Vanity Fair, the, this idea that, you know, in fact, I want to pull from her first paragraph here. In the final month of this terrible year, I'm here to celebrate the achievements of a white man who is manifestly unqualified for his job. <laughs> no, I did not expect to end up here. But then and I am the first person to point this out. 2020 has been weird and tough. Um, but I, no, I think that it's look, all of the characters on this show are you know, good people trying hard to be good. And the conflict that, that comes is a result of them trying to be better and them trying to like redeem themselves for the mistakes that they've made, not out of malice, but out of just being human and being flawed and being pained and repeating that pain onto other people. And I think that that couldn't be more what the world is. And I think it's, it's very similar to Schitt's Creek in that regard, right? Like these are, they're not perfect people. They're flawed yeah. people. There are reasons why anybody might not like these people. And a lot of them don't like each other, but you can never say about them that they're not trying to be better. And I think that fundamentally is something that not only do we all like seeing, but we also, it's a good lesson. Like Mo also says, it's not just entertaining, it's important. And I actually do believe that. Yeah. Also, also, it's just like unapologetically funny. It's really, it's just a really funny show. And there are some sly jokes in there that I still can't get over. Like the fact that they had a Proud Boys spit take joke. <laughs> like you gotta be kidding me! It was it, and it was perfection. I so there's just so much of that. And then the other thing I'd say is is that the thing I love about the show is like Ted obviously is like constantly sort of spouting these, you know, put it on a kitten poster sort of you know therapy speak. And but what the show is fundamentally about is that like that's not the solution. It's that you sort of have to do the hard work and it's messy and it involves interacting with people and it's not just a little bit of love in your heart that's not going to solve it. It's the actual work. And even then you might not get what you want is just it's it's a it's a remarkable it's a remarkably small tonal target to hit and they just nailed it. I don't want to um, spoil this moment because I, I finished Ted Lasso like really recently, uh, crazily enough. It's kind of like saving it for myself. Um, but there is a moment kind of in the maybe ninth episode or tenth episode uh, where it is building up to one character having to confess something that they did wrong to another character. And the result, like the immediate result is just forgiveness. And it blew my mind. Like I knew that this show was so kind hearted and that it would take something to lead up to that moment and just have it be about grace felt so like... I mean, not to make it about social media, but man, like it felt like something we could all use more of. And it yep. seems so pat and simple to be like, it is teaching us how to live. But like, maybe it's just like the raw emotional state we're all in. But that is the that's the level in which it was hitting me. Well, I think it's because it doesn't it's not cloying. You know, I think that when I had I was a sort of a later adapter to Ted Lasso, because when people were describing it, they were, it sounded like the things I liked least about something like Parks and Rec or even latter seasons of Schitt's Creek, where it was like they were really going for that sentiment really hard. And while there were still good performances and clever writing, that sort of overarching sweetness for me kind of put me off. And so I went into Ted Lasso because work required me to watch it, <laughs> but also <laughs> because I was curious and I was so surprised episode by episode, scene by scene, that that kind of bonhomie and that sort of spirit of goodwill like 
felt sourced in something honest and not um, canned, you know, and that's a very, very deceptively difficult balance to strike um, that involves a lot of, I think, intricate writing and plotting out character arcs and all that stuff that it's very simple sort of setup and and aesthetics and all that wouldn't necessarily suggest how much work is actually going on underneath uh, the process. Part of the reason that works is because every, like all the British characters in the show are like, Ted Lasso, you're ridiculous. Like the spirit that you bring is fundamentally ridiculous. So you do, you <laughs> never you never feel like everybody's sort of as obnoxiously earnest as he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that balance works. Again, I think it's intricately done, and and props to the entire writing staff and really all the supporting characters too. But um, it just it works. Yeah, they've got. You think of the two the two players on the team. I think Sam uh, is the um, the guy. He's from. Which, which country is he from? He's from outside of the UK. I think he's Nigerian. Nigerian, um, But yeah, Tahib Jamo, he's he's just... Yeah. Yeah. And then later in the season, um, this guy, Danny Rojas, played by Christopher Fernandez, oh, who's a Mexican yeah. player. And they are both... Danny they're Rojas. both like... <laughs> Peppy, smiley, like lo- like the best teammates you could probably imagine, but they're different. Like they have different <laughs> versions of that kind of sunny personality. And that is really hard to pull off to make that kind of optimism feel like it belongs in distinct people. Um, and that's an impressive writing and acting feat. I mean, even just to make the Danny Rojas character not fundamentally ridiculous. I mean, it is fundamentally <laughs> ridiculous, but like still it works. Like you like He just loves what he does. Football is life. But just to bring that in later in a season as like a new character and have it not just take everything off the rails is right. in and of itself an extraordinary balance of like, you know, tone and performance and all these other things. No. I'm a huge uh, Roy Kent fan myself. Mm-hmm. Um that's my guy. And um I think having that character, I mean as as you mentioned, like it's 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 having Rebecca, the the great Hannah Waddingham and and the Roy Kent character being so acerbic all the time, that like beautiful British wit that's in there um, bouncing off of what Sudeikis is doing. And the thing that I want to say about Ted Lasso, and it's perfectly appropriate that we're talking about it right off the back of, of Underground Railroad, is like, I think it's great that TV is going through a moment right now where the line between TV and film is blurry. We're figuring out what, what makes sense here and there. And sometimes these experiments are great and grand and sometimes they're not, but sometimes we just want TV. And this is fundamentally a Bill Lawrence show, like Bill Lawrence of Scrubs and Cougarton and, you know, like Spin City. Like this is a TV show. And like, yeah, thinking about that, like parade of movie talent that Apple had at their like big presentation, they're like, Chris Evans is here, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, but it was it was Ted Lasso. It was like, sometimes we just want TV that's TV. Um, and I, I know that like Marvel is, you know, not to make everything about Marvel, but Marvel's going through that right now, sort of figuring out their speed on Disney plus and like WandaVision was definitely TV. And with their second outing Falcon Winter Soldier, they were trying to make that a six hour movie. And I feel like that was less successful. And I'm like, do TV, you could do TV, like do it. So yeah, make make TV TV again is is sort of my point. See, I'm just increasingly like just just throw out the distinction. Like I know this is like, you know, basically blasphemy in a lot of communities, but like I just don't <laughs> I but I just don't care on a fundamental level. It's just sure. like if it's good and I enjoy it, it I really don't care about the format. And so I sort of just want to trust the people that make this stuff to make whatever they feel like is best for the form. Ted Lasso easily could have been a movie, right? Because it, it, it's basically Major League like meets Great British Bake Off. <laughs> like if I was pitching if I was pitching the movie, I'd be like, is Major League meets Great British Bake Off yeah. set at Crystal Palace, mm-hmm. right? Um 
Also, shout out to Brett Goldstein, because not only is he Roy Kent, he is also a writer on the show, yeah. which is part of the reason why he's my favorite. Yeah. Um, also, I played defense when I played soccer. <laughs> um, but I, but, but I, I, again, for me, it's just like increasingly no longer about the star. Like the star of the thing is the thing. Tusum Bedu, no one outside of South Africa and the international Emmy voters probably knew her name. She's a star after you watch it. You'll be interested in what she does next. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true with Ted Lasso. No quote unquote big stars at Sudeikis. And increasingly, I find myself less interested. And I think people even outside of the industry find them less inter themselves less interested in watching any individual. And it's more just like, is this thing dope? Because if right. it's dope, I'll watch mm -hmm. it. And if it's not, I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm not. You can cheat it a little bit, right? Like yeah. I watched the Michael B. Jordan, Tom Clancy movie because it was Michael B. Jordan. But like, you know. It's about the thing. We, we all have our people we'll follow to the end. I watch Woman in the Window. We we all have people we'll follow. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll get there. I haven't gotten there yet. Um, yeah, I mean, what's what's true is is there's such an embarrassment of riches. And I fundamentally agree with you that I don't think it's... I'm not one of those people that is like, oh, you can't describe TV as a six-hour movie. Like, sometimes you can make a six-hour movie and it is very successful. Like, sometimes that works. So, like, I don't get hung up on exactly that. I just don't want to lose TV that's just TV because just TV is that's so fair. great, you know? And and, um, Wait, but how are we? How are we defining just TV? Something okay. I, I just had a conversation with someone about this, who's who's the creator of an upcoming show. I'm really excited about. I was asking him, is this a movie, quote unquote, a six hour movie, or is this TV? And he was like, it's TV because each episode feels like an episode. You can identify the episode. You can say the one where. The one where Ted Lasso does this, you know what I mean? And with Ted Lasso, you can, you can be like the one where they have a game out of town and they do karaoke. The one where like, you know, this, like you can, you can think about Ted Lasso episodically uh, and Underground Railroad, you can think of it similarly. Like that is very episodic, yeah. obviously like location determinate episodic. Um, but a lot of other things like Queen's Gambit. I loved that. I don't think I could sort of pick out a single episode. Or Mayor of Easttown, I've been finding this with, where like I watch yeah. all the screeners at once. I've been, Joanna and Rich, I've been listening to on your show and being like, oh, that happened in that episode? Because it doesn't all uh, fit together for me as much as I love Mayor, Mayor of Easttown. Here's the flip on that, though. Are franchises like the Marvel Universe and Fast and Furious then... TV. Yes. Because you can definitely do that with Fast and Furious. Correct. Like the one where they go to Brazil, <laughs> no. the one where, you know. The one where boats are, um, the one where cars are boats, the one where cars are, are spaceships. <laughs> I just want the the one where they go to outer space. Yeah. That's that all what this I'm, one is? Isn't that the, the is, Fast and Furious? Yeah, 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 space in this one, I believe. I want, here's my pitch for the final episode. Alien Invasion movie. The tagline is, this time, family is all of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and it's fast Fast in your seatbelts, but fast 10 <laughs> yes. uh -huh, uh -huh. your seatbelts. Correct. We should all be so lucky to be considered part of their family. That's and, a... and the poster is just Vin Diesel handing a Corona to all, like, the planet. <laughs> to an alien. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or an alien or both. Or yeah. an I think it's the alien. Yeah. I think that's how, that's it, how resolves. it resolves. The, f the final sequence is the aliens and the gang having Coronas, like, in East L.A., They've made peace, and now the aliens are super obsessed with cars. And like, <laughs> Vin and and, yes. and and Vin has upgraded the Nas with alien technology. Yes, and I uh, I would like to buy a world of Coke plays, but it's a Corona instead of a Coke. Yeah, there you go. The greatest product placement in history. I think we just made Universal Pictures two billion dollars. Ten year seatbelts. No, yeah, I I do think that Fast and Furious and the Marvel movies are TV. I do, but you know, yeah. but once uh, again, I the I actually I agree, but I think that's what's fascinating about the moment we're in. Yeah. Exactly. This is a great kind of kickoff to our Emmy season. Now we've determined that the summer blockbusters are TV. There we go. <laughs>
I'm never going to hear the end of this. <laughs> um, I do want to close it out just with a broader Emmy thought. And obviously, we'll talk about the Emmys a lot going forward. But um, I think the general consensus is that Ted Lasso is going to sweep the comedy categories at the Emmys. It'll be really interesting uh, kind of what fits in beyond that. Um, do you guys have any like sense of what what kind of tone is that setting for us? Like, is it exciting that we're going to all be rallying behind something new as opposed to in previous years when it's been like Shit's Creek's final season or Veep running forever? What what does that make you excited about to see? I don't know that that's because, you know, Fleabag had Fleabag had its year. Sure. Atlanta had its year. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there was there's a lot of been a lot of like this is the fresh new creator that we're really excited about. And Ted Lasso actually will almost feel like good old Bill Lawrence. You can still <laughs> do it sort of thing. Um, I guess I made a story. You fills the uh, fresh new creator oh, uh, slot man. this year. And that's in the limited. Michaela better category. better eat up those awards. Yeah, um, I was going to say. Joanna, you and I can riot. It's fine. <laughs> I don't think it'll just be you guys. We'll take yeah, to the streets. We'll, we'll take to the streets. Um, we've been talking about this. I can't remember if we talked about it on this podcast, but speaking of like people finally getting their due, I would love to see this be the year of Gene Smart, who is oh, crushing yeah. it simultaneously on two shows. Um, yeah. I mean, in fairness, it's already the year of Gene Smart. <laughs> but with some hardware. Like, with Emmys, some hardware. <laughs> Emmys, Emmys or not, it's already the year of Gene Smart. Excellent. But yes. Hacks is amazing. The two episodes that I've seen of Hacks it. Hacks is so good. Does Gene Smart play the alien that Vin Diesel is getting a girl <laughs> to? Wait, actually, but hang on. But no, but absolutely put Gene Smart in a Fast and yeah. Furious movie. Oh, yeah. For sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Oh my God. Um, I want, I'm like, I want to give, I want to give Kate Winslet some recognition for what she's doing in Merit because to, to your point earlier, Every time an Oscar-winning actress does a prestige mystery show, I'm not always interested. Um, I am interested in what Kate Winslet is doing here. Um, I think it's very good. I think it's uh, better than I expected. It's way better than I expected it to be. Um, Mare itself gets, you know, a little bumpy towards the end, I think. But I think Kate is just like driving home a great performance. But I think she'd be in the same category as Michaela. And it's hard for me to think of anyone other than Michaela getting that award right um, they would both be limited seriously as actress right? yeah do you guys want to hear i'm like look, looking through gold derby at the limit so limited i mean we talked about underground railroad that's in this category mayor mm. wandavision i may destroy you queen's gambit um you know a sample prediction on gold derby is michaela cole anya taylor joy cynthia revo kate winslet nicole kidman that's without even to some elizabeth mm. olsen it is brutal that is a tough category. Really tough. I feel like this happens every year, honestly. Um, Do you think yeah. they eventually start making distinctions of limited series? Like, best limited series under five episodes or over <laughs> an hour in length? I don't know, because I feel like this embarrassment of riches keeps happening in this category more and more. Yeah. Um, whereas sometimes it feels like traditional comedy is, you know, a little bit thin sometimes, or or certainly drama, you know. I don't know. I just I'd be curious to see if it because like that's where all the big names and not just like established names, but emerging names like Michaela Cole are going to that limited series thing, not being bound to like a years long contract. They might want to just honor more of them by somehow finding a way to creatively expand those categories. What about a category that's like best limited series that they're actually lying about because they will announce a season two after we give them this Emmy? Right. Yeah. Best maybe limited. Yeah. WandaVision is really interesting. I don't, I personally, I loved WandaVision. I don't think it should win, but I think it should get heavily nominated in order to encourage Marvel to do more experimental. If you want to call one, it's WandaVision isn't even that wildly experimental, but like by the Marvel standard it is. And so to do more 
bolder storytelling like that, I think, um, you know, and, and that's, that's, it's the kind of boldness that I wanted from Falcon and Winter Soldier. And it's the kind of boldness that I want from them, uh, going forward. So I hope that they get that reinforced, that codified, um, <laughs> reinforcement of a, no- of much, many nominations. Well, that's essentially what the Emmys do now, because for, in various ways, like I think Ted Lasso getting a bunch of Emmy nominations slash wins, like that's a really big deal for Apple TV plus, which like, I don't know if I always am like rooting for Apple, but you know, <laughs> I think that, but it, but it does in a weird way kind of breed more competition and, and, and has to raise everyone's yeah. standards. And, you know, so maybe that is a good thing. Um, I just want to throw out my theory about Apple TV Plus, which is that they are premiering Coda, the Sundance winner that we talked about a few months ago on August 13th, which is a few weeks after the season two premiere of Ted Lasso. And I just think that Ted Lasso is going to get a bunch of Emmy nominations. The second season is going to premiere. And then that's going to be a great launch pad for Coda, which is also really crowd pleasing. Um, I'm ex- I like that movie a lot and I'm excited for what that might mean for Oscars. OK. Ooh, an Apple Oscar question mark? I, you know, I'm the number one boy state fan, so... I hope they'd get they'd get there for that. I, I wonder if if that also means that Apple's sort of going to try to coalesce a brand around this sort of Ted Lasso, Boy State, Coda, sort of wholesome, feel good, optimistic content. That's really interesting. Like I did, it just yeah. it literally just occurred to me as you yeah. mentioned it, sort of in the context of those three things. But it like that is a brand that a large corporation can certainly get behind, right? It's not going to be complicated in the way that a lot of other content is. And it's kind of like the old school like think different Apple of the late '90s, where it was like the funky, like cheerful the little Rainbow brother. Apple? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's I mean, look, that stuff works when you do it well, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it's the whole Bill Lawrence brand on some level. But like, if you're able to do that on a consistent basis, like you definitely have a content business so it, it could be interesting it'll be interesting to watch hey i'm brian stelter host of inside the hive from vanity fair this week with the help of dan adler and olivia nuzzi we're going inside the media circus swirling around donald trump's criminal trial people want coverage of donald trump there are sort of shades of 2015 2016 i found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of trump coverage in the last two years Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, well, I was also looking at the competition in the Supporting Actress in the Limited series, which is incredibly fierce. Um, and that should lead us well into Richard's conversation with Marielle Heller, who was right mm. in the mix of it, for her supporting role in The Queen's Gambit. And... Um, Last time she was here, you were talking about Can You Ever Forgive Me, which she she directed. Now she's acting on The Queen's Gambit. I'm not sure what there is that she can't do. Um, but you just want to say a few words about Mario Heller before we hear your interview? Well, not only is she terrific in The Queen's Gambit, and it was a reminder that she started out as an actor before she became a director. Uh, she also directed the filmed version of um, What the Constitution Means to Me, which is also That's right. incredible. in Emmy contention yeah. uh, as for like a live TV event thing. Um, so she had a pretty busy 2020 uh, going into 2021. Uh, she's just, you know, one of the emergent multi-hyphenates working right now. And so it's always a pleasure when she comes by and we can pick her brain uh, about her choices. And, you know, particularly I was interested to find out what drew her to Queen's Gambit in particular. And did she anticipate it being the thing that it turned into, which was pretty big. Well, let's hear your conversation with Mario Heller. Well, I'm so happy to have a returning guest to Little Gold Men, uh, the writer, director, actor, Marielle Heller. Marielle, thank you so much for being here. It's so fun to be back. You had quite a fall of 2020. <laughs> um, 
you were busy on two very different, well, not very different, but pretty different fronts in terms of acting and directing. Yeah. And I, we want to talk about both what the Constitution means to me, which you directed, and the Queen's Gambit, which you, you acted in so beautifully. Um, but I first wanted to ask, you know, what we're kind of asking a lot of our guests, how the last year has been for you, not not in terms of your personal life necessarily, but like creatively, have you been able to to work on anything or has it been good to have a time when you're not working on anything? Um, A little from column A, a little from column B. I mean, I have not been able to do a lot of creative work is the truth because I'm a parent of two young children. So like many working parents, you know, my needs and creative life kind of got put on the back burner in order to at first homeschool my older child and have a baby and, you know, figure life out. And it's, it's been a really tricky year, I think, for working parents. And I think, you know, I've talked to some of my friends who are writers and directors who've been like, oh my God, I've been so productive this year. And it makes me want to die when I hear that because I'm like, oh my God, I have lost all sense of myself. I have been just raising my children. But I feel the glimmer of hope that I'm starting to return to a creative life and to my own needs and my own life separate from just trying to survive this pandemic, I think. And, um, you know, starting to look toward what's coming ahead. But it's funny to think about these two projects coming out in the fall of 2020, because both of them were filmed in the fall of 2019 before anything happened. So, yeah. It, was it nice to have those two things that you had already completed, but then arrive during this kind of stasis year? For, well, not stasis in always, but at least in terms of work. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that, like, at least it would that you know was gave you some bit of kind of a creative excitement or or it professional did. excitement. You know, I the guess. beginning of the pandemic, the first I'd say five months of the pandemic for me was taken up with editing, editing what the Constitution means to me, which we had already shot but also getting to see cuts of The Queen's Gambit because I'm close friends with Scott Frank and so he was kind enough to share early cuts with me and I could give him my thoughts and stuff. So in so many ways, you know, lockdown was a really good time for either writing or editing. You know, these were parts of parts of making things that felt very doable, even though, you know, shooting things didn't feel very doable. So um, that was a really nice distraction to be able to work on those two projects and see something coming to fruition. And then it was really fun when they both came out, <laughs> you know, it felt, it felt like something was happening, even though I was, you know, still just kind of locked in my house, but it felt like a connection to the outside world. And um, yeah, it was fun. And I think for, for me and I, a lot of other people I talked to who watched the Queen's Gambit and, and loved it um, like I did was that, it kind of came out of nowhere for me. I mean, mm. and, and for a lot of people, I think it was not, you know, uh, I didn't know that you were in it. And then when you showed up, I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> I know. that's Marielle Heller. Um, yep. So I'm curious what your, you know, you said you were friends with your good friends with Scott Frank. So is that where the origin story is for you um, being in this piece? Yeah. So I know it kind of came out of nowhere for everybody and I wasn't talking about it. I had this weird kind of, I was a little bit in my head thinking, because while I was doing press for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, I was filming Queen's Gambit. And I, I didn't talk about that because I felt like it, it, 
was going to sort of make me seem less serious as a director if I talked about acting in a series or something. I don't know. I was sort of in my head about that. Um, so I kind of kept it a secret. But yes, yeah, Scott and I are friends from the Sundance Labs. He was my advisor when I was making Diary and we became buddies and we stayed in touch and over the years would kind of share projects with each other. And for fun, I came out and played a little part in his movie, A Walk Among the Tombstones, because A.B. Kaufman who's, was casting it and I knew each other and it was sort of just like, and I knew Scott. So it was sort of just like a fun way for me to go do one day of acting. And as I did it, I said, you're going to cut this out. I know you're going to cut this out of the final film. And he did. Um, but that day he looked at me and went, oh, you're actually an actor. I only think of you <laughs> as a director. I had no idea you're actually an actor. I'm going to make you act in something for me. And he kind of kept that going over the years. Like, don't forget, I'm going to make you act for me one day. I'm going to, I'm going to find something for you. And he would try over the years. He tried to get me to be in Godless, but I was making, can you ever forgive me? And then this came around and he first lured me into playing a much smaller part. And I said yes to that because it was a much smaller commitment. And then he lost the actress who was going to play Alma Wheatley and came to me maybe a month before filming began and said, do you want to play this much bigger part? And I was like, you are crazy. That <laughs> is, makes no sense at all. I'm a director. No one knows me as an actor. Netflix will never let you do that. Like that doesn't make any sense. And he was like, oh no, they already said yes. So you, you go freak out and tell me what you decide. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and what made you decide ultimately, do you think, to do it? You know, I never, I never decided to stop acting. I, um, right. cause you started as an actor. I started as an actor and for the majority of my young life, that was all I ever wanted to be from the time I was eight years old until I was about 28 years old. You know, I, um, I went to theater school. I studied acting. I worked in off-Broadway theaters and did regional Shakespeare. And, you know, I, I had this version of what my life was gonna be as a, as a regional theater actor, really. And then I wasn't, as a 25-year-old young actress, I wasn't getting meaty parts. I wasn't getting to play things that were really like creatively satisfying me. So I, I really turned toward writing and then directing in, a, in frustration with my creative life and it was it wasn't a conscious choice to say you know I don't want to act anymore it was just like I can't I'm not playing parts that feel real enough to me and so the diary of a teenage girl came out of that came out of that desire to write a part for a young woman that felt really real and meaty and complex and full but I never consciously thought and then I'll never go back to acting that's it I'm I'm moving on and but but what started happening was I fell in love with writing and then I fell in love with directing and then I was getting more opportunities in that realm and it felt very natural to kind of just transition and then you know then 10 11 12 years go by and I haven't acted in that long. Mm -hmm. And so when he brought this up to me it felt like Number one, a really stupid career move to say yes to, because it's like, I am not known as an actor. That's going to make me seem way less legitimate as a director. And also it's going to take me out of town for many months. And it's just like a very bad move for, for my real career, <laughs> sort of is how I thought of it for a second. Right. 
And, and yet I also thought, but it sounds so fun. And anyway, I was turning 40 and I was really kind of burned out after doing, can you ever forgive me? And a beautiful day in the neighborhood back to back. And I didn't know what I wanted my next movie to be. So I was sort of in a good state of mind to say yes to a project that felt a little bit crazy, you know? Yeah. I mean, you said you were, you know, you mentioned uh, like meaty parts and this Alma is exactly that. Yes. And she's such a complicated figure in the show. You feel like there could be a whole show about her, you know, Um, but she fits so beautifully into this story. What were the conversations like with Scott Frank and and with with yourself even about who Alma was and how you should approach her? Because there's I mean, not the way the, the writing is subtly done, but there a version of this character could be kind of outwardly gregarious or outwardly, you know, negligent or whatever. But yeah. she's so balanced. So I'm curious at how you arrived at that kind of calibration. You know, there were just little hints in the script about her past and her pain and her kind of complexities that I latched on to and kind of tried to figure her out from that point outward, you know, there's like little mention of we had a child and that's it. And there's no explanation for that. And Scott was very sparing with what he would fill in for me. So I would kind of prod and ask about certain things and he would kind of leave it to me to infer what I would from those little hints in the script. Um, But the thing that I think I latched on to about her was her being a pianist, being an artist who never got to fulfill her potential and feeling like, oh, I can relate to what that would be like. What if I had been born in a different era and I was this woman who never got to fulfill my dreams? How would that feel? And I was like locked in this house in this loveless marriage. I kind of thought about the play A Doll's House or something like she's she's been just locked up and um and it's only in seeing beth follow her dreams and become this chess player who beats all the men that she kind of goes oh that's possible i didn't even i thought my life was over i thought i was done and i loved that there that was kind of the way i got into her from a heart perspective of her plight and just what it would feel like to be her I don't know, that felt immediately empathetic to me. And it wasn't until after I played the part that a lot of people said to me, like, oh, I thought she was going to be so different or so over the top or so awful. Or, and I was like, oh, I never even imagined her like that. I just I just saw her pain, I guess. And then that was the thing that made me interested in her. Some might say there is a fine line between a parent who is supportive of their child's huge global fame adjacent ambitions between that and like being, you know, stage parent and overbearing and maybe pushing the kid into something that they're not ready for. Or yes, I think that that is teased out in the show between Alma and Beth, you know, where there are scenes where it feels like Alma's maybe pushing a little too hard because she wants to take the trip or have the money or whatever. But also there is a genuine support there. So how, how do you look at Alma's relationship in in, in the, the way that she supports Beth's burgeoning career? I think there's totally both. And that's part of what I liked about all of these characters is that they they are as complex as real people are, you know, in the same breath, Alma can 
be coming from a resourceful place where, yeah, we need money. And my husband left me and I don't know how we're going to have enough money to eat this month. So what do we need to do? And there's a kind of scrappy resourcefulness to that. And then there's an also admiration and actual love between her and Beth, where she looks at this young woman and thinks you're, you're the person I have been looking for my whole life. You are the relationship that I never had. You are the, you know, in some funny way, I, I loved that these two women are so alone when they meet each other. They're both used to being alone. Neither of them thinks they need anyone. And then they find each other um, and they have this unlikely pairing and there's real love that builds between them, a real dependency, but a real love also and respect. And um, I just liked that in within one scene, we could play all of those contradicting things, you know? Yeah, I think the show does such a really beautiful job of delineating that being an independent person does not mean not having people that you rely on. You know, I think that by the end of the show, we see that Beth has this whole coalition of people living and dead yeah. who have been around her, you know, this orphan who's now found a community. And, I, you know, Alma is clearly a part of that, but also found that for herself in Beth. Yes, Alma's um, a huge part of that. And I think lets Beth open up enough to rely on other people. Right. You know, she's sort of the beginning of Beth being able to form those other those uh, other relationships that end up being so pivotal. And it is so touching at the end of the series when you realize she has a coalition of people who are supporting her. Um, and she isn't alone. And I think for Alma, there's something so awakened by Beth, you know, like I loved the scene we got to play on the plane where I admit to Beth that I have this pen pal I've been keeping up with in Mexico City who we're, I'm going to meet up with. And, you know, there's this, I kept thinking of it as like something got woken up inside of me by, by seeing Beth and what this new life we were living together. You know, it, something had been lying dormant for many, many years in Alma that got awoken and it was such a fun thing to play. <laughs> Yeah, how Alma got her groove back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think a, a part of that interdependence is the way that you and Anya Teller-Joy work together. Um, you know, she's a young actor who has established herself pretty mightily, you know, in just a few years. But also this was a huge undertaking. I mean, this, she's in pretty much every scene of the show. And yeah. and I'm wondering if any of your, you know, working with Belle Powley on, on Diary of a Teenage Girl and just your skills as a director, like, do you feel that that made you did that inform how you acted as a scene partner uh, to someone with especially, you know, such a huge burden on her shoulders for this project? I think it probably did. I think I looked to Anya in a similar way to how I looked to Belle, which is almost like a big sister, or I want to say that so that I sound younger and not like her mom, <laughs> but um, you know, that like I felt um, similarly sort of protective of her and like, I want her to, make the right choices in her career and stay a good person because both Belle and Anya are great people who are connected deeply to their humanity, but are not, you know, have not been corrupted by the Hollywood lifestyle and are just not jerks. And, you know, I think a lot of what Anya and I ended up connecting on and talking about was 
the kinds of projects we want to work on, the types of life we want to have, and me kind of passing on whatever little bits of wisdom I've learned the last few years about how to be a young woman in this business and how to protect yourself, but also stay connected to your joy and to your, the things that make you creatively fulfilled and to not losing that and not becoming jaded, I guess. Um, so I felt, I felt a real kinship with her right away and I felt a protectiveness of her. And I also wanted her to, like I was, have be able to see what a great job we were on. You know, I think she and I both looked yeah. at each other every day and we're kind of like, this is amazing. <laughs> like this is such <laughs> a wonderful job. And Scott Frank is such a wonderful boss. And we have such wonderful characters to be working on. And we both loved the relationship between these two women so much that we, there was a bit of just kind of relishing that we, we took on um, that I felt like I could kind of, I could kind of give that perspective to, you know, like, yeah, this is really good. There, there's a lovely marrying there in a way, you know, obviously things for Beth and Elma are a lot darker, but yeah. like that kind of like realization of like, we're in this thing and it's going places and, it, you know, that, uh, that shows in the acting, I guess, uh, what yeah. was, whatever was happening off screen. Yeah. Um, even when you were having a fantastic experience on set, you're still doing it something in a vacuum. You have no idea what it's what it's going to do when it's out in the world. And then The Queen's Gambit debuted on Netflix in October and was a big hit. Do you have a memory of when you realized that people were really connecting with it? I don't think there was one moment, but I, I will say... I really didn't think it was going to be that big of a hit. I mean, yeah. I don't think you can sort of predict something like this, but I thought it was good. I knew it was really good. You know, when we were filming it, I thought it was possibly going to be good. And I felt nervous about how the chess would play. I was, I couldn't, I couldn't see everything Scott could see because I wasn't directing it. I wasn't the one, you know, holding the bag. Um, and then when I saw the first cuts and I realized he had figured out a way to make the chess so compelling and that the relationships worked so much and more than any of that, you're just on Beth's side. Your relationship as the audience to Beth is so strong um, because Scott's a really good filmmaker and he puts you squarely on her side from the moment the series begins and you're just rooting for her. I realized how successful it was at what it was trying to do, but that still wasn't realizing it was going to be like this crazy mega hit. I still don't totally get it. I mean, it's a show about yeah. chess and um, I can't put my finger on why it hit in such a way. There was also a moment when back probably in April, like the first month of the pandemic where I saw an early cut and I said to Scott, are you really going to wait until October to put this show out? And he said, yep. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, but then lockdown's going to be over. What a bummer. Oh. <laughs> so naive. <laughs> so naive. Um, and of course, it came out at a time when we all needed something like this so badly. You know, it, it couldn't have come at a better moment. And, um, you know, he waited until it was really done and really good, which I think was the right thing to have happen as well. And then, I don't know. Yeah, I started hearing from a lot of people, a lot of people who started watching the show who know me and it took them a while to realize it was me. 
Wow. Yeah. Just because I cut all my hair off and I looked so different. And also people were like, what are you doing in this show? Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, when I reviewed the show, I was like, oh, I found this little gem and I'm going to be like Prometheus bringing it to the world with my glowing review. And then everyone else gave it glowing reviews. But one thing that people were surprised when I, when I tweeted about it, I said, oh, and Marielle Heller's great, you know, and people were like, she, what? Like, do you mean she directed an episode? And I said, no, no, she's in it. Um, so it was a very, pl I think it really added to the nice overall surprise of the Queen's Gambit that here's this wonderful performance that was so Aww, in some ways unexpected. Sweet. Yeah, I, that was kind of a fun a fun little addition i mean i i have joked with scott that it's like the one time in my life i would actually be recognized out in the world but of course i don't leave my house and if i do i have a mask covering my house so i haven't actually you know experienced that um but i'm actually probably glad about that if i'm being truthful Fair enough. Um, were any of the people that you heard from as the show made its way through the world, people who were like, hey, do you want to do more acting? Or have you thought about that? Yeah, I've had a few, truthfully more like I've had director friends now who are like, oh, you want to be in my thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and at some point I will probably say yes to one of those things, but it's been hard to navigate how to do that during COVID and I have a little baby. Um, but no, it's been it's been a funny thing. I think the people that I've heard from that I realized in hindsight I was the most nervous about were my actors who I direct, you know, people like Richard E. Grant or Tom Hanks or Melissa McCarthy, who I'm like, oh, no, I'm so I ride my actors kind of hard. I'm like kind of a tough director on them. And now they're going to see me act. I hope they don't think I'm terrible. And then I lose all my street cred as their director and they don't want to listen to me when I'm giving them like really tough direction. Um, but it's been a nice, fun thing to have like Alexander Skarsgård write me a really sweet email about my performance. And I just feel like, oh, this is weird, like great. <laughs> so has, has all the, the success of the show allayed and your performance uh, allayed any of those fears about like, it's gonna somehow delegitimize your directing? Has, have you been able to put those anxieties to yeah, rest at least a yeah. little bit? Yeah, those anxieties yeah, have, have quelled as the show came out, and it's good. I think, you know, the, the real risk was if I was terrible or the show was terrible, and then then we'd be having a different conversation. We probably wouldn't be speaking, but, um, you know, then I would be feeling embarrassed and like, why did I do that? But luckily, I picked well and, um, you know, trusted in Scott, and he's just really good. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a great story from all kind of all angles. So um, if people I don't if, if listeners haven't watched it yet, go watch it. Um, and they should also watch what the Constitution means to me, which you are one of the very few people who has bridged a great Cold War between Netflix and Amazon. Um, <laughs> I didn't think uh, of it like that, but it's true. <laughs> um, so what the Constitution me means to me is this really singular beguiling work from Heidi Schreck that I saw off, 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 off Broadway. Yeah. I don't know how many years ago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was curious about what your history with the, pro with the, the, the show is um, and then what led to you uh, doing this filmed version. So so I come from theater, you know, my my background really is in theater and Heidi and I kind of came up together in the off-Broadway theater scene and we have a lot of friends in common. Um, she's from Seattle and I'm from the Bay Area and there were kind of a lot of a lot of people 
from her world from Seattle who are all in New York. And we had a lot of friends in common and saw each other at events all the time or at plays. And we knew each other and knew each other's work. And so I think knowing that and knowing that I had made The Diary of a Teenage Girl as a play first and then turned it into a film, she came to me and said, you know, I don't know if you'd ever do anything like this, but I'm trying to bring the play. I want to do a filmed version of the play. And I, I don't really know how to make that actually happen. I've had some interest. It's sort of overwhelming. How do I do this? Would you ever help me? So in, in a funny way, I almost don't look at my role in that as the director, because the play had an incredible director. She had already honed her entire story. I was there to be like a translator between theater and film to say, I know theater, I know this world. How do I take the experience we had, all of us who got to see this play in a really intimate, tiny theater when it started, which I did as well. And it was such a moving piece of work. And I just felt like as many people as possible needed to see it. How do I take that and, and translate that to film? And how do I use my contacts and everything I know about these two different worlds to also bridge the gap? Because it's really, there's a lot of boring technical reasons why it's really difficult to film a play. So yeah, so she asked me that and I said, I, I will happily help you make this a reality but it was a really short turnaround. She was turning, the, the Broadway show was gonna close within a few months and it felt like it was gonna vanish and be gone. So um, it was a really quick thing that we turned around and, and made happen, but it felt really important. Her work is so poignant and so important. And particularly in the election year that we were in, I felt like we have to get this this show out to as many people as we possibly can before the election. Yeah, yeah, no, it 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 felt just the right kind of pertinent, you know, at the when it came out. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask you about some of those technical details, though, because sure. I I'm always curious. You know, you have these filmmakers like Jonathan Demi and Scorsese who have done kind of concert films. I know this isn't quite a concert film; it's a different dynamic. But you know, it is a fixed stage and a performance that isn't necessarily moving to accommodate the camera it's kind of the camera has to do that mm -hmm. right like yeah so i'm curious like wh where is the is the work in the camera placement is it in the editing afterward like how did you find the the sort of it's in, creation of this it's definitely in those things it's in doing what you can do with a camera that you can't do with the naked eye so what did it feel like when you or i saw that performance in front of 49 people versus the enormous Broadway house. What was the intimacy we felt? How do we create that intimacy? And that's one of the beautiful things I think about movie making. And when I moved from theater to film, one of the things I, I was so excited about was how close I could put a camera to someone's face and how you could see their breath and you could see the slightest flicker across their eye and you could register that. Um, there is such an intimacy to that. Uh, so that was my number one guiding force was intimacy. How do I create that intimacy? Because I felt that connection to Heidi when I saw the first performance and I felt it when I saw the Broadway show as well, but I, it was further back, you know, it was a different kind of thing. And I wanted to create that, that feeling, the feeling of being so close to her that I could hear when her voice caught in her throat or recognize when, you know, she had to take a breath for an emotional reason or whatever it was, her performance is so striking. 
So we did, it was about camera placement and all of that. And it was also about capturing on, we captured some performances without the audience where I could get the camera up on the stage in her face, really with her. Um, and then, and then using the language of editing, which was an interesting thing to kind of try to explain to Heidi the ways in which the editing had to work different than you would work in theater. You know, it can have its own language. Quick cuts do something to you emotionally as an audience member versus a longer cut or, you know, a longer shot that goes on. Or what does it do when you cut from a side angle to like a straight on real close up? What, what does that do emotionally? What's the language of that? And and I worked with my same editor, Anne McCabe, who's done both Can You Ever Forgive Me and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So she's really a film person. And um, we brought that same kind of work ethic and film editing to this piece to kind of try to give it just that translation piece, if that makes sense. No, it does. And it, it, it feels it feels very dynamic. You know, I think sometimes you could think of this as being a kind of static thing, just put the camera, film the thing on stage, you know, yeah. but there's so much, it, it brought me back to being in that off, off Broadway theater in the alphabet city or wherever it was, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I was really glad because I think this is a piece that I, I, I wish that people all over the world could see every New York theater thing that I've gotten to see and enjoyed. Yeah. But um, this one felt particularly like it, it survived that translation really well. Yes, um, I agree. And I think, I think Heidi would agree that that was a thing for her to kind of get used to was how dynamically we could edit and shoot it versus just straight on. Um, you know, I think it, it felt new and a little scary at times to kind of add that element to it. But, um, but the purpose was to create that exact experience of what it felt like to be in that room with her. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a striking piece of work and you want, I wanted to do it justice and I just wanted it to be seen by as many people. And more than anything, I just wanted to be of service to her and to her story and to help get that into the world. So it was really about also just kind of helping to push that through all of the, all of the bureaucratic technical difficulties between unions and theater unions who don't usually really deal with film unions and film unions who have no idea how to deal with theater unions and um, and just the money part of it and how to get it actually to happen, which was a lot of moving pieces, but um, but just, I felt so worth it. Yeah, no, I, I it, it is. And I hope that people, if they haven't seen it, will watch it. One thing that I have been asking people here and there throughout uh, this past year is I know you're busy with two young children and homeschooling and all that stuff, but is there anything that you've watched, I don't know, in the last few months, last year, uh, TV film that has resonated with you, brought you kind of guilty pleasure, comfort or enlightened you in any way? Can you, can you think of any, any show or TV like that? I mean, like everybody, I think I've been relying on the work that's coming out right now to kind of give me a connection to humanity. I thought A Promising Young Woman was remarkable and just stunning. Um, I was so moved by my dear friend Chloe's Nomad Land and so happy for her. And then I've taken a lot of pleasure in, you know, all of my guilty pleasures too. I, I watch every franchise of The Real Housewives. That helps okay. get me through every day. And uh, like everybody, I also am enjoying 
you know, I feel like these are boring answers, but like the, the most recent season of The Crown was like one of the best parts of my fall. So um, what do you what do you think about Luann moving into that apartment where she can see Tom's apartment? I do not that... think that she is telling the truth about that being a fluke that she didn't notice when she bought the apartment. Hello. Or, or signed to the rental agreement or whatever. You knew you lived in that apartment. Yeah. You lived on that balcony. We f- watched you film on that balcony. We know that you know where that balcony is. So give me a break. That that felt like total bullshit. But um be a wild coincidence. Wild, if it wasn't a coincidence. wild <laughs> coincidence that that yeah, never yeah. could be. And I'm excited about Ebony. I'm excited about the new season. I told my friend the other day that I feel like at this point I've been watching Real Housewives so long. It really is like sports for me. Like I look at the different cities, like different teams, like who's in a transition year? Who needs some new blood? <laughs> who's got, you know, like who needs a new villain? Who needs to shake up the lineup? And and the, <laughs> we need some new rookies in there. Like that, I, I'm deep. I'm deep in this. <laughs> well, what they could start doing then is trades. You know, I'm down I think for this that. person doesn't work in Dallas. Let's put them in you know, you know, wherever. Cynthia Bailey could go to Beverly Hills. Sure. She's got Mike Hill in L.A. I mean, she has a crossover. We could totally do this. <laughs> I think this should be pitched. So maybe that's your next project. I don't know. <laughs> Consulting producer. I think on. my agents would yeah. have a heart attack if that's where I went with my career. <laughs> if after, you know, taking on Queen's Gambit, which they were like, oh, OK, 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 that's an interesting move. And then I was like, my new career is just idea man for the Real Housewives. Uh, well, never say never. <laughs> and whatever you whatever you choose to do next, uh, we will e- eagerly await it. Um, Marielle Heller, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And um, thank you for this wonderful work. It's, you know, been it was really, you know, a comfort and an enlightenment for me uh, and many others uh, during this difficult year. Thanks, Richard. It's always so nice to get to talk to you. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Uh, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. You can find, a, we've name-checked a lot of VF stories on this, so good for us for some log rolling. Uh, and also, uh, Richard, you will have written about Shrek by the time people hear this, so uh, they can read that. No, I won't have written Shrek, yes, but I will have written about it. At least. <laughs> well, you wrote Trolls. It's a com- yeah. competition. You can't write Shrek. Um, all right, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. You can find us on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Joanna... Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylos. And Franklin. Franklin Leonard. Um, I also want to throw out, you can text us via subtext at 213-513-7201 or go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen. Your questions, as always, are wonderful. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And the award for the idea that will win Franklin Leonard an Oscar goes to Franklin Leonard. Now the aliens are super obsessed with cars. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 